You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma, where we seek out stories of resilience from individuals and experts in the field. I'm Angela Shen. Today, we're talking to veteran and mental health advocate Sergeant Aaron Quinones. He talks about his mental health journey and how he teaches others to heal through service. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's a great opportunity to come and, and share with you guys some of the things that I've learned. Absolutely. Why don't we just start with you telling us your story? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the mountains in Northern California in the mid 80s and 90s. And I grew up in a small little mountain town outside of between Eureka and Redding. It's a small little town called Mad River, California. And I grew up honestly just in the drug trade. You know, my parents were marijuana farmers. So in this little tiny town, the graduating class in 1997 was seven students. So that's how small it was. And I grew up in the shadow of this place they call Murder Mountain. So they actually did a documentary on it about how the, dr- the drug trade worked out there and just all the violence and murder uh, and drugs and how all of that stuff was just happening up there. And so I've actually watched the marijuana trade go from the Wild West to Main Street. And, you know, living, living like that, growing up in that kind of environment, uh, I didn't have running water when I was a kid. We didn't have power. We just had this really ramshackled kind of house that my, my dad had built. I didn't realize as a kid how that that wasn't normal, right? Like (laughs) normally people don't grow up in that, but there are some really positive things that I learned from there, you know, despite all the violence and abuse and all that stuff, there's a lot of resiliency that you learn there. And you can, you're, you learn to endure hardship. And so once you learn how to endure hardship, other things are so much easier. The problem is though, people kind of get stuck in this victim mentality. And so they let those become barriers. And I teach people that you got to take all that pain and hurt and disappointment and abuse that you've experienced. And you've got to harness that and ride it like lightning onto victory. And that's what I've been doing for the last decade. And man, it's been amazing. Why don't you talk about your journey in the military? I joined the Marine Corps straight out of high school because I want to go and see the world. So I grew up really, really poor and the kind of poor where you know you're poor. So I, in at recess, I remember I would just go to the library and it was kind of my escape because I would just read these National Geographic magazines where I could see places like Anchor Wat and I could see places like the pyramids down in South America you know, I could see the Maasai people in Africa and just be like, wow, there's this huge world out there. And so when I joined the Marine Corps, I was like, this is my way to be able to see all these places that I've only ever read about in books and magazines. And so I joined the Marines and I got recruited into a special forces unit called First Anglico. And so Anglico is the Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. It's a small group of forward observers and master parachutists. We parachute in and we call all the air, artillery, mortars, all that stuff onto the battlefield. So so for those people who are trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? You know, when you're watching CNN and you have the reporter on in the field and they're, they've got the mic and they're talking about, you know, and you're seeing bombs getting, getting dropped in the background. Like there's a guy like me with a pair of binos and a radio telling them where to put that munition. That's what a Ford observer does. And so when I was in the Marine Corps, the Marines is a tough uh, organization to get into to begin with, right? But to go into a special forces unit, it's it's a whole different world. But I look at my childhood and all those hardships that I endured as a kid, they really prepared me to be successful in the Marines because where other people were struggling with land nav and staying out in the field and the hardship of that, for me, it wasn't as big of a hardship because I had learned to harness that, to harness that power that those experiences had instead of them holding me back. 
I learned how to use those as a catalyst for my future. And the way I talk about it is it's like the slingshot. It's my slingshot analogy. So if you see a stone like on the ground and you pick that stone up, you look at it, it's probably not going to go very far in your lifetime. It's just going to stay a stone right there. You could pick it up and you could throw it and it would go a little ways. But if you pick up that stone and you put it in a slingshot and the farther you pull it back, when you let go, all that inertia is going to launch that rock farther than anybody ever thought possible. And what I tell people is you are that stone, right? And all those things in your life that are holding you back, poverty, abuse, homelessness, addiction, they're all holding you back. And it's true. They absolutely are holding you back, but only because you refuse to let go of them. When you decide to let go of that past pain, let go of that hurt and not let it define you anymore, it will launch you farther into your future than you ever thought possible. And you don't have to believe me. There are thousands of people all over the world who are experiencing this very same thing, that when they decided to let go of that victim mentality, that hurt, that pain, it launched them farther than they ever thought possible into their lives. So I, I joined the military and I didn't get to see the world <laughs> at all. Like I did not get to see any of those places. They lied to me. Uh, I got to see a bunch of desert in Iraq. Like that's, you know, that's what I got to see, but whatever, it's totally fine. I did a tour in Iraq in 2003. And when I came back, I really started struggling with mental health and I did not understand it. I was like, what is happening to my brain? Like my brain, it felt like it was malfunctioning sometimes. Like things would get cloudy. I couldn't put together thoughts and ideas. I was trying to, it felt like I was, in a fog, trying to put, put something together that I couldn't see with my thoughts in my mind. It just felt very foggy and I would get frustrated and angry. Like anger seemed to be the only emotion that I could feel other than like depression and anger. Like those are the only things I could feel. I was like, what is happening? Something is going on. I went to the VA and honestly, at that time, the VA was no help at all. It actually made things a lot worse for me. And that's how I ended up homeless. The second time was mainly because of the VA. Number one, they were just over-medicating me and not giving me any real solutions. They weren't explaining to me how the brain operates or what's actually going on. So I was left in the dark and I didn't have a disability rating at the time. And so things have changed now. Praise God. Things have changed. Robert Wilkie, who's been in charge of the VA, he changed these things, which is phenomenal because I was one of those guys that fell through the cracks. So this is what happened. I would go to the VA and I would get mental health treatment and they would send me a bill because I didn't have a disability rating. So they'd send me a bill and I'm like, I'm not paying this. Like we signed a contract here. You know, I said I would fight and you said you would take care of me. And so I didn't pay it. Well, at the end of the year, I filed my taxes and they took my tax return. And so living paycheck to paycheck day by day, you know, when you're depending on, you know, a couple thousand dollars to come in so you can pay back bills and get back on track on rent and it doesn't come in, I ended up living in my car. And so I, I don't have a whole lot of love for the VA system. I mean, I know they've changed, they've done great, but it's been really hard for me to want to try and use that system after that experience. But I'm not alone. There's been a lot of guys who've had those kinds of experiences. The VA is a lot better now than they were before, which is really, really good. But I'm one of those guys that really ended up falling through the cracks of that system. And it caused me a, a, a lot of pain and, and hurt. But like I said, I don't, I don't let that define me. I just keep trying to push forward. And I use those experiences to try and launch me to the next step, you know, in my life. Do you want to talk about your suicide attempt? Yeah. So, whew, man, it was, 
I was really struggling with mental health and I was, I was tired of going to the VA because it was just tons of medication and, you know, trauma is, is really, really sticky. And so I was managing my mental health, right. As a lot of people do, cause they just don't talk about it. They just try and deal with it all on themselves. And it's just heavy burden. And so I would drink a lot of alcohol to try and manage it, but not because I wanted to get drunk. Like this is, there's a lot of guys that, and gals that do this and they're drinking, not because they, they want to it's you have to drink so you can numb the pain so you can fall asleep that's exactly what i was doing like i wasn't out partying having a good time drinking like that's that's not what i was doing i would literally drink until i could pass out so i could get a few hours of sleep because that's all i could do at the time i was just self-medicating and so that's what i was doing at the time and i was really really struggling and i remember it was the fourth of july and i was had been going through a really bad ptsd episode and I I was just driving around looking for a quiet place to end my life. And so I drove into this vacant parking lot and I thought, okay, this is a quiet, big parking lot. I'm going to back in next to this building right here and just end my life. And so I did, I backed into that, to that building uh, and I took my nine millimeter pistol out and I set it on the, on the center console of my truck and uh, it was a little warm. And so I rolled down the window of my truck to get a little bit of a breeze to go through and as I sat there, I could feel the heat coming in through the, through the windshield. And uh, I could hear these kids playing on a playground not too far away. Now, I couldn't see them, but I could hear them. And I remember thinking, I'm going to wait until these kids take off because I don't want them to have to experience you know, what's about to go down. And so I sat there and I just waited and I waited and I waited. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up. And when I woke up, those suicidal ideations were gone. And so I thought, huh, that was really strange. And I put my pistol away and I drove on about my day. A few days later, I got a call from a buddy of mine saying, Hey man, why don't you come to church with me? And I was like, no, thanks, dude. Like religion's not my thing. I don't want to be part of that. And uh, he said, all right, well, here's the address, man. You should come and we'll have lunch after. I was like, all right. Well, that Sunday I woke up and I was a little hungover. And so I looked down and I saw that address and I was like, ah, what the heck? I'm going to go check this thing out and see, you know, what this is all about. Get a free lunch out of it. And so I did. I went to the address and I drove right back into that very same parking lot that I almost ended my life in just a few days before. And I was shook. Like, what is happening? Like, I didn't believe in God during that time, but there was something there and I needed to figure out what it was. Driving back into that, into that parking lot was it was like something out of a movie. I was like surreal. What is going on? And so I went and I started listening to the pastor and he was talking, he was doing this series about feeling lost and alone. And I was like, man, this dude is reading my mail. Cause this is exactly how I feel. And so I kept going. And then after the series is over, he does an altar call. And I thought, okay, well, this is what I do, right? Like I go up there, I give my life to the Lord and all this stuff is going to be better. And so I did that. And nothing changed for me. I was like, well, that didn't work. What did I do wrong? And I was like, okay, but there's something here. I need to figure this out. And so I joined a church small group, but it's just a small group of guys to get together and do Bible study together. They talk about different parts of the Bible. And so I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading these medical journals at the same time. And I'm seeing these incredible parallels between what science is saying and what the Bible has been saying for decades. And I was like, this is incredible. So I started writing all this stuff down and just taking notes and then trying different things 
you know, in my life and saying, oh, that worked well and this didn't work. And so I'm creating a little program just, just for myself to be able to understand how the brain works and how to overcome trauma. And I, I figured that my brain is like a weapon system. It's in the Marine Corps. I was a close combat instructor. So I taught hand-to-hand combat and they say one mind, any weapon. So I thought my brain is like a weapon system. If it's malfunctioning, I got to figure out where it's malfunctioning, take it apart, put it back together so I can get back in the fight. And so that's the approach that I took. And so I'm putting all this stuff together and I'm still not really understanding it. And my church asked me to go to Mexico to build a home for a homeless family. And I was like, no, nah, I don't really want to do that. And you'll notice throughout my life, that's my theme, right? Like, I'm like, nah, I don't want to do that. It's a lot of work. I'm not, I'm not interested. You know, I, I couldn't hold down a job. So I'd started a little janitorial company during this time. I had like a couple of employees. Well, I started with just me and one other guy scrubbing toilets. But by the time I went on that mission, I think I had like two other employees. And they, they asked me to go build a home for a homeless family. And it was on Memorial Day weekend. And I was like, no, nah, I got plans for Memorial Day. I'm going to go to the bar and get drunk uh, and remember the guys that uh, didn't come back with me. Right. That's how I was going to honor them is to, to have a few beers. And that's what I'd done every year. And so that's what I was going to do that year. But, uh, but I didn't, I went to Mexico and I built that home for a homeless family and it fundamentally changed my life. I, I couldn't believe it when I was down there. It was the first time in years that I felt anything other than just anger and hate and disappointment and regret and depression. Like for the first time I felt joy and I actually cried and I was like, wow, I'm crying, but because I'm happy, like this is, I don't know what this is, but I need more of this right here. And so I went back to my church and I said, Hey pastor, that mission was awesome. When's the next one? I want to get on it. He's like, well, we only do that one time a year. I was like, no, that's not enough for me. Like I got to be doing this all the time. And so he helped me connect me with all these different organizations like YWAM, Builders International, Maps Construction, AGWM, all these different organizations that are out there doing this stuff. And I started signing up and going with these guys all over the world, building churches and schools and orphanages, digging wells, doing feeding programs. And it was helping me so much. And what I learned when I was looking at these medical journals and what the Bible says, like the Bible tells us to consider others before we consider ourselves, right? To, to it's better to, Jesus says, it's better to give than it is to receive. You know, in the book of James, it says, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials. So all of these different things, these concepts, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. But when I started going out and living out these principles, it started to come together. And I was like, wow, there is healing from trauma through serving others. And then by reading these, these medical journals and these manuscripts, there's all kinds of studies out there that prove this, that have quantifiable evidence that show that when you're out there serving the community, serving other people, helping other people, that you get this huge mental health boost in your life. And I was like, this is incredible. So all these journals and things that I was doing, it all started to make sense. And I was like, oh, there's healing through service. And so I, I did that. And over the past 14 years, I was able to grow my janitorial company from just me and one other guy scrubbing toilets to having over 110 employees here in the Pacific Northwest. And so it's been amazing. And then over the last six years, God has called me to lead other veterans onto the mission field to find that same healing that I did. 
And so that's what I started doing. I started taking guys down to Mexico and we, in two days, we'll build a home for a homeless family and we call it Operation Restore Hope. And so we take these guys down and in two days we build a house and I teach in the fundamentals of this program. And now we actually have a book that anybody can pick up on Amazon. It's called Healing Through Service. You can get it on my website or on Amazon and it'll walk you through that, that step-by-step process. The same thing I went through. So each chapter, there's 11 chapters. Each chapter has a, a concept that we're talking about. And then we, so we mentioned the concept in the first part. The second part, we talk about what does science say about this concept? The third part that we do, it's uh, what's a scriptural uh, relevance? What scripture say about this thing? And then the fourth part, we give you a tactical application. So how do you take what you've learned and put it into practice right now today? So each week that you read this book is giving you another task and another task. And I like to tell people that I, I really just Mr. Miyagi them through the whole process, right? Like just, we're just painting the fence right now and they don't really understand why, but eventually they, they, they will. So we go week by week through this program. They learn uh, these fundamentals, and then we take them to Mexico where they get to actually exercise these things and live it out. And if guys can't go to Mexico, it's totally fine because you can go through the book as a group and you know do something in your own community because that's what we do at the end. So we take them to Mexico and we do this, this big missions trip, but I tell them like this isn't a one and done. You have to make this a lifestyle. And so I plug them into other areas in their own communities where they can serve and give back to their community. And the people who do that live some amazingly rewarding lives. I've got a veteran out of uh, Oregon who came with me when he was on suicide watch. And he, he was almost, he was facing homelessness himself. He'd been homeless before and he was on the verge again. And he went through the program. He started applying these principles. Now he runs what's called Operation Rebuild Hope on the Oregon coast. And he runs the largest, most successful veteran homeless program that the Oregon coast has. He's doing so well that ORCA, which is the, the Oregon Department of Social Services, they gave him a $3 million grant and said, you're doing a great job. We want to help you do even better. So they gave him a staff of social workers and psychologists and peer support. And so that's what he's running. And he's teaching them the healing through service curriculum where he takes them out and doesn't just give them resources to get them off the street. That's part of it, but he makes them earn that, right? Like they have to be out in the community serving somewhere. That's a fundamental part of his program because it's helped me and it's helped him and so many other guys. He's like, this is success. And now not only is he helping veterans get off the street, but the veterans are rebuilding their communities. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I, I, I just get so excited about it because if I can do something and it's successful, I don't really count that as success. But if I can teach somebody else how to do it and they have the same or even better success than me, for me, that's what's rewarding and that's what's successful. Yeah, that's so amazing. I love your energy. I love how enthusiastic you are. I mean, you have such an amazing story and I just love that you're using all this to help others. So here's the crazy thing about trauma, right? Trauma is very, very, very sticky. And so like me, I was managing my mental health, right? So I thought I was just putting everything into this, what I call deal with it later box and just packing it away and packing it away. And it's kind of like the, the show Hoarders. So if anybody's watched the show Hoarders, right? People just take all this stuff and it packs in a closet and then the closet becomes a spare bedroom and then it moves out into the hallway. And then before you know it, the whole house is just full of all this junk that they've never got rid of. It's not doing them any good. It has no value, but it's just junk that's in there, but it creates distance between them and other people. 
right? The house isn't working right. Their hygiene starts to fail. People don't want to come over and hang out because the place is so disgusting and there's no place for anybody to be because there's all this stuff everywhere. Well, we do that when we experience trauma. We just hoard this trauma and we keep sticking it away in our brain until there's no space for anybody else to be there, right? Our hygiene starts to suffer. Our relationships start to suffer. People don't want to hang out with us because we have these overreactions to stimuli that's sometimes benign, but we have an overreaction because we haven't tried to unpack that or tell people that we're wounded. And so we have these overreactions and it causes, um, it ca- I call it the emotional hoarder syndrome, where we just become these emotional hoarders and then nobody wants to hang out with us. And so that's a big, big problem that I see when people experience trauma is that it causes this distance between them and everybody else. And that's exactly what I was doing because I, I had done that and I thought I was managing mental health well until I had another mental health crisis. And so I had another trauma. It was December 22nd of 2007. I had a guy break into my house. I had a good job. I was a sales manager of a car dealership. I had a longtime girlfriend. I had just bought a condo. Like I was starting to kind of like get things back together. And then that guy broke into my house and, you know, I have a concealed weapons permit. And so as I walked into my house, there's a guy in my house. I draw my weapon and I tell him to get on the ground and I tell him to keep his hands where I can see him. Well, he reached for a gun that was in his waistband and he didn't make it. You know, I was able to, to in that firefight really quickly. And then I had to go through all of this stuff with the police. And then there's all of that trauma that you deal with when you have to take a life. It just brought all that other trauma from combat and my childhood. It came flooding back and it just completely overwhelmed me. And my whole life that I'd spent building up to that point within just six months, I was right back on the verge of homelessness and alcohol abuse. My girlfriend had left. I lost, you know, the, the condo. I lost my job. I mean, I was at rock bottom again in six months that quick because I wasn't managing mental health. And so when that next trauma hit, it just completely overwhelmed me. And I think that's, that's true for a lot of people who experience this is they don't deal with it. And so when something else happens, it just compounds the issue. And, and here's the thing, nobody's going to get out of this life unscathed. There was a research study that was recently done that said 67% of men in America admit to having a mental health crisis in their lifetime. So think about that statistic for a second. 67% of men who are notoriously tight-lipped about mental health are now starting to say, hey, I'm struggling. So think about that. That's two out of three men in America are admitting it. But imagine how many of them are not right? There's a good portion that are not admitting it. So it's fair to say that the vast majority, if not every single person in America is going to experience a mental health crisis at some point in their life, a bad car accident, a bad breakup, domestic abuse, witnessing violence, being a victim of violence, loss of a loved one. You know, I mean, that's all, it can be traumatic, and if we don't handle those things well, if we don't process through that, it just becomes a wound. And then anytime somebody touches that, we have an overreaction to that wound and it causes us to damage relationships, lose jobs, and, and it can deteriorate our life. It's like a slow, it's like a, an infection, right? I tell people that a mental health wound, it's kind of hard to think about and see. And so I try and explain it like a physical wound. Like if you had a big gash on your arm, you wouldn't just cover it up and go about your business. Because if somebody came up and slapped you on the shoulder, like, hey, buddy, how's it going? You're going to have an overreaction to them. And they're not going to understand why, because you didn't tell them that you were injured. 
But if you have an injury, you tell your friends and family, like I've had an injury, I'm going to go to the hospital. They're going to clean you up. It's going to be painful. They're going to give you some pain medication. They're going to give you a treatment plan. Then you're going to go back to your friends and family and say, Hey, I was injured. This is my treatment plan. And they're going to give you space and grace so that you can heal properly. They're not going to have the same expectation of you. They're not going to be like, Hey, come help me move on Saturday. You're like, I can't dude. arms all busted up. But if you don't tell them, they're going to expect you to perform at the same level. And then that's going to cause friction in the relationship when you can't. So if you can explain uh, to them the same thing, when you've experienced a mental health crisis or trauma, explain that to them, then they can also give you space and grace so you can heal. You tell them about it. They're going to help you get into treatment. Then you're going to get a treatment plan. They're going to be part of that. They're going to help monitor your medication and your progress. And they're going to give you space and grace so you can heal. And in that way, not only did they help you heal, but they've got a mental health bonus by doing that, by being part of your mental health plan and, and helping you heal is created this incredible feedback loop in, in their brain that, that, that shows that, that, you know, there's studies that show that mental health or that when you help other people, that it boosts your own mental health capabilities. And so it's pretty, pretty incredible. When I found this feedback loop, I'm going to give you this study here in a second. Let me pull it up. It's, it was amazing because I went through this whole thing and it was all just theory. Right. And then I found this study and I was like, no way, this is incredible. So, okay. <clears throat> so the study is called the neurobiological of giving versus receiving support, the role of stress-related and social reward-related neural activity. And it was published in the Psychomatic Medicine Journal of Behavioral Medicine is where it was published. And the lead researcher was Tristan, Tristan Zaki, a PhD from the University of Pittsburgh. Okay, and this is what he said. This is the, the conclusion. He said, giving social support had a profound effect on, re on the reduction of stress-related activities in the dorsal anterior cingular cortex, the right anterior insula, and the right amygdala. Yes, the amygdala. Remember that small little primitive area of the brain that likes to hijack us by causing panic attacks? There is also a greater reward-related activity in the left and right ventral stratum, as well as a greater caregiving-related activity in the septal area. So basically, they were able to look at the brain for people who were giving support and receiving support. And they found out that the people who were giving social support actually had a huge mental health boost. And the, the, that's the basis of my whole program is that there's healing through service, healing through serving others. And when I found that study, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Like, this is what I've been talking about. And it's right here. It's quantifiable. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And there's all kinds of other studies like the Mother Teresa effect and all kinds of other studies that you can look to that show this very same thing. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think your analogy about the wound is a really good one. I've actually never thought of that. But that's a really good way to put it. Would you say you've gone throughout your mental health journey, just doing your own research and your own learning, or did you ever see a mental health professional? Yes. So I did see a mental health professional at the VA and it, it wasn't a whole lot of help. I mean, I would go there with more questions 
and they wouldn't have nearly as enough answers. And so I would go in there and because I'm reading these studies and I say, well, according to this study, and, and I'd be rattling this stuff off and they're looking at me like deer in the headlights and, and nothing against them. I just don't think they were prepared for somebody like me who would actually analyze and ask them questions and strategically be trying to figure this thing out. So I just started going it on my own and doing this research. And then I would contact mental health professionals and say, hey, this is what I've read. This is the theory I'm working on with this healing through service. Can you tell me, am I doing something wrong here? Like, am I off base or is this, am I on track here? And so I would touch base with these different mental health people. I would just call them on the phone and be like, hey, I found you in the, in the, in the, um, I'm a Google, you know, and this is what you do. I want to talk to you about mental health. And, and I'd tell them, and these guys were so excited to talk to me. It was really funny. I'm like, look, I'm just a janitor. Okay. So you're going to have to like talk real slow for me and give me lots of terms that I can go look up. Cause I'm not going to understand everything, but they were so cool, man. These guys were awesome. They would totally help me out. And when I remember when I wrote my first book, I turned it over to a couple of these guys and said, Hey, can you just take a look and make sure that I'm not saying anything that's wrong, you know, in here. And so that's been my relationship with mental health professionals and counselors. And it's been great, you know, and it sometimes throws them off because they're like, wait a minute, you don't have a degree in psychology. No, man, I'm the janitor. Like, well, you don't have any college at all. I said, no, man, I got high school diploma. That's it. I read a lot of books. It's just like, what is going on? So yeah, I did a ton of research on my own. And so in my book, I put all of those research studies there and I encourage people like, don't take my word for it. Don't, don't take my analysis, you know, go and read this stuff and, and, and learn for yourselves. You know, that this stuff works. It was a survival technique. I was just yeah. trying to figure out how my brain like it was malfunctioning. I got to figure this out. I, I never went out and, and did this to try and help other people. Not in the beginning. It was just to help myself. And then God called me to that work. And so I did it. And over the last few years, so six years, I've been doing this now. I've received a couple of different awards from the Department of Veterans Affairs for this program. And then in 2017, I was named Seattle's hometown hero. And now I'm part of the Seattle Seahawks Task Force 12. And I did the mental health training for the Auburn PD right here locally. And then I just went over to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because there's a group of pastors out there. I taught a huge group of pastors this, this, this program, this healing through service that they can use now as a small group study in their churches to help the active duty members that are there. And they want to take Q missions and start an East Coast branch. And so that's what I was over there last week, helping them put that stuff together. And so, so I, I'm not actually doing it. I'm just giving them the tools and the churches are the ones going out there and running this just like a small group. And so when I wrote the book, I designed it specifically for churches and organizations to be able to use as a small group study. Because a lot of times when it comes to mental health, people are honestly, they're doing it all wrong. They're doing it all wrong, even the professionals. And it's because it's your mental health. And so everybody is connecting with these apps or connecting with these counselors. And it's just a one-way street, right? It's I'm getting help for my mental health with my therapist or with my counselor. And that's it. It's a very private thing. It's a very narrow road and you got to kind of do it all on your own. And that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing when it comes to mental health. There was a study done by the department of the army. It was a 40 year long study and they wanted to determine why the military was so successful on the battlefield. And they narrowed it down to one single element, the squad. Because we fight in squads, we are more effective because every single member of the squad values the squad over themselves. Therefore, they fight harder and longer to stay alive because they don't want to let the squad down. And on the other side of that, every member of that squad knows if they get injured or pinned down, that their squad is literally going to walk through hell to go and pull them out because we're never going to leave a man behind. So when it comes to mental health, we can't do this alone. We didn't fight 
the war alone. So we shouldn't be fighting PTSD or trauma alone either. It takes a support network. And so a big part of my program is teaching people to find two or three other battle buddies that you can pull together to help you when you're struggling with mental health. And it has been wildly successful. And so, which, which leads me into my next point is the suicide prevention tool that I created is all based on this squad mentality, a small group of people that you know and trust that can help you when you're struggling with mental health. And, and the support isn't one way, it's two way. Sometimes you're giving support, other times you're receiving it. And if you're the one giving support, remember, you're getting that mental health boost. And so you're working together to, to build this great mental health strategy for your whole team, your whole group, your whole squad. It's been, it's been wildly successful in the civilian, or I mean, sorry, in the, in the military realm. And we're taking those same battle tactics from the military. I, I tell people with the app, we took military battle tactics, merged them with current technology, and we created the first of its kind mental health suicide response tool that's actually working. And if you look at other mental health tools that are out there, again, it's back to that same old way, that narrow, it's me and the app and we're connecting and I'm building my own resiliency, which that works, but only to a point right? John Maxwell, who is a world-renowned speaker, trainer, and coach, he says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. And that's your mental health journey. If you want to go far, you need to go with a team. And that's what we teach is, to, is that team mentality and how to use that when it comes to battling mental health. My last question would be, I mean, if somebody's listening who's struggling with PTSD or suicide ideation or depression, what would you tell them? What would you suggest that they can do starting today? Well, right now today, I just want to tell you that you're not alone, that there's a lot of us dealing with that same thing. And we feel isolated and alone, but you're not. There's a lot of people struggling with that. So just know that first off, that you're not alone in this battle, even though sometimes it feels like that. The second thing I would tell you is that what you focus on, you're going to find more of. And so there's all kinds of studies out here that show this, but what you focus on, you find more of. So when those negative thoughts, feelings, and emotions stop bombarding you, you have to retrain your mind to focus on something positive in your life. And this doesn't come easy. You actually have to write these things down ahead of time. So that way, when these situations arise, you can go right back to that and shift your mindset because what you focus on you will find more of. And there's a great little story about this. So if somebody came up to you today and they gave you $20,000 in a brown paper bag, all $1 bills, $20,000. What's the first thing that you would do with it? Now for me, I would count it, right? Because <laughs> I want to make sure it's actually $20,000. But in the process of counting that money, if I found two or three of those bills that were dirty and smudged and ripped up and just... Uh, really gross, what, what would I do? Would I take that whole $20,000 and throw it away that it was no good? No, absolutely not. Would you hang on to those two or $3 bills that are dirty and gross? Probably some of you would, but not me. I would throw those two or three bucks away because I got you know, 19,998 good ones. I don't need those two or three that are bad. And that's us. According to research, the average person has 20,000 experiences per day, 20,000 interactions with people. And so if you have one or two bad experiences, it's no reason to throw the whole day away and say it was a bad day, right? You don't even need to hang on to those two or three bad experiences. You can just dismiss those and focus on the, the other 19,000 that were fantastic. 
And that's what we can do in our life is we can focus on the positive. We can shift our mind to those things that bring us joy and happiness. And that will start to boost your mental health. And so those are, that's the, the second thing I would say. And the third thing is you have to build a squad, find a small group of people that you know and trust that can help you when you're struggling with mental health. And if you want more information on that, you can check me out at sergeantq.org, or I'm sorry, Sergeant, you can find me there. Or you're, if you're a veteran, you can go to qmissions.org and you can sign up to go on one of these missions with us. You can also visit healingthroughservice.com. There's an online curriculum so you can get the book and go through the online curriculum on your own, or you can sign up to join one of my classes that I teach online. That's awesome. All right. Anything else you want to add? Um, so I think that for the people who are listening and if you're involved in a church or maybe you're a leader of a church, like that, that position inside the church is so pivotal when it comes to helping people heal from trauma because people don't show up to a church because they've got it all together. They show up because they're broke and they're hurting and they don't know what to do. And that was me. That's how I ended up in church is I was so broken and it literally at the end of my rope. And it was those guys in that small group that taught me and cared for me and showed me that I had value. And I am forever grateful to those guys. And so when I built this curriculum, I built it specifically so the church could use it to help guys like me who are coming in, whether they're a veteran or civilian, it doesn't even matter because these principles will work for anybody. And so if you're in a church or if you're in leadership, or maybe you're just part of a church and you want to bring this program to the church to help them heal their city, please reach out to me. I would love to connect with you and show you how you can do that, how you can be a catalyst for change in your own community. Because our national politics, that's not going to, that's not going to change. That's not going to change the way that we're living right now. The national policies and politics, doesn't matter who's in power. Okay. What matters is how you treat your neighbor, how you care for your neighborhood, how you take care of the people that are around you, right? That's what's going to really change the world. It's not going to be who you vote for in the next election. So if you want to change the world, start by changing your own neighborhood and you're going to have great success. It's very true. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Download. I'm Angela Shen with Mental Health Association Oklahoma.